Hey folks, before we dive into today's episode, we've got some exciting news for you. Mark your calendars for September 17th to 19th, 2024, because Bioport Atlantic is on the horizon. This marks the 23rd year of bringing together the brightest minds in the life sciences sector. This year's theme, Powered by Possibilities, promises to ignite inspiration and foster collaboration amongst attendees. Whether you are an entrepreneur, a researcher, an investor, or a student eager to dive into the world of life sciences, our conference offers something for everyone. Save the date, and for more details, visit lifesciencesnovascotia.ca slash bioportatlantic, or check the link in our show notes. Can't wait to see you at Bioport Atlantic 2024. Hey everybody, it's Taylor here. Before we get to today's episode, I have a favor to ask you. If you've been listening to the series and an episode or maybe a, a particular piece in an episode has jumped out at you and you thought, wow, that's really interesting. And there is somebody in your life that would benefit from knowing that piece of information or listening to that particular episode. Share it with them. Send it to them. And if you've been liking this series so far, if you could like, follow, subscribe, rate the show, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, that would mean the world to us. We want more and more people to listen to the show and to know about the amazing companies that are coming out of Nova Scotia. Thanks. Enjoy today's episode. Today, we are going to talk about something that almost half of everyone on earth will experience at some point in their life. It is something that becomes more and more likely with each passing year, and it's something that the medical community has been hunting down for decades. Sometimes medicine will experience a major triumph, but far too often, a major defeat. If you haven't guessed it already, I'm talking about cancer. It comes in all shapes and sizes. It can grow as a tumor on your bone, or it can sneak undetected in your blood. It can take its toll on your body both rapidly and slowly. Although at first glance, it may not provide much solace to someone diagnosed today, there are thousands, maybe millions of people who are working on this problem around the world. Some people are working in ways that could revolutionize the future of cancer. And some people are working in ways that impact the quality of care that someone will receive today, in this very moment. This is one such story. From Life Sciences Nova Scotia and Snack Labs, welcome to New Wave, a podcast that explores the pioneers that are shaping the future of life sciences. Do you know someone who has cancer or had cancer in the past? You might be listening and thinking, do I know someone with cancer? I am someone with cancer. Either way, the odds that your answer to any of the above is no is almost impossible. But how much do you know about it? What do you know about how we treat it or about the minds and machines and technology 
around the many breakthroughs and innovations that we've made as a human species to combat this persistent adversary. This is a story where science fiction meets reality, and with a space race of the 60s and all the minds behind it, influenced decades of medical technology. Our story, though, first, starts with Bruce. My name is Bruce Ross. I grew up in uh, Toronto, Nova Scotia, uh, and uh, went to St. Mary's University, graduated in 75. Bruce spent his life in the medical arena. He grew up in Nova Scotia, went to St. Mary's University, and planned to join his high-achieving peers at Xerox, today's equivalent of being headhunted by Apple or Google or SpaceX. He would be a Xeroid, as they were colloquially known. But after a chance encounter, life led Bruce down a different path. I'll tell you a quick story. In 1975, when I was graduating from St. Mary's, I was, uh, I, was, I was fairly highly ranked. I was valedictorian of the class. And, and so I was being recruited. They had on-campus recruiting back in those days. And I had uh, six companies that I was being offered a job by. And uh, the guy that was doing the recruiting for this company, CanLab, uh, came into the bar. I was a bartender at the Gorsbrook Lounge at the time on campus at St. Mary's. So he asked me, he said, so what are you going to do? And I said, well, you know, I think I'm going to go with Xerox because back in those days, being a Xeroid was primo. And, <laughs> uh, and, he, and so I, I kind of I laughed when he, when he looked at me. He says, you're making a mistake. I said, what are you talking about? He said, look, if you come with me to CanLab, and your parents get sick when they're 60 or 65 years old, you will know what to do because of the medical background you have. From that moment on, Bruce's life work revolved around the medical and healthcare industry. Bruce helped startups get off the ground, and he took private companies public. He spearheaded sales teams and helped develop products. Bruce was renowned for fixing whatever needed to be fixed. Bruce had his fingerprints on every aspect of the medical world, and his experience gave him a very unique perspective when his doctor, on the other end of a phone line, gave him the news that would turn his life upside down. Uh, circa 1999 or 2000, uh, I had an aortic valve replaced. So by that, I would have been, you know, 60-ish. And... Um, my mom got sick uh, with cancer. She had a sarcoma in her, her leg, and she was down in Truro. So my wife and I, Linda, we decided to retire and move back to Nova Scotia. So we moved to all places. We ended up east of uh, Muscadabit Harbor. And uh, I, uh, I had a little mark on uh, above one of my teeth that had been smashed out playing hockey. I played junior. And... Uh, my dentist uh, looked at it and she said, you know, you need to go to a periodontist. And uh, so I went to periodontist in Halifax. Walked out of her office with about 14 stitches in my mouth uh, and uh, called me and said, Bruce, I hate to tell you this, but uh, you've got cancer. I had the little red mark on the gum above my tooth for four and a half years. My dentist in Colorado Springs used to cut it out and throw it out, I guess, because he never got the pathology done. So I then went to QE2, uh, met uh, Chad Robertson, 
He has a medical degree and a dental degree. When he took out, I think, five teeth, and it turned out that I had, uh, that it had gotten into the bone in my jaw, so it took out a lot of my upper jaws. And then, uh, oh, two, three months later, during follow-up, uh, Chad was palpating under my jaw and found I had metastasized. And so I ended up with a really big cancer. And then I had to have chemotherapy and radiation at the same time. Uh, and uh, I dropped about 45 pounds. Here's the thing about cancer. You can do a lot of things to stay healthy. And believe me, you should. There is plenty of evidence to support hundreds of choices that lead to a reduced risk of developing cancer. But sometimes, cancer just doesn't care. I, th I think when you get diagnosed with cancer or with heart disease or uh, anything that's chronic, uh, it's a surprise because you live a... I lived a very athletic life. Um, I been a cyclist all my life. I played hockey. I was a canoeist, uh, a runner, a pretty, pretty good runner. Sometimes, no matter how many kilometers you ride, how much weight you push, or marathons you run, the C-word comes knocking at your door. And when it does, there are people that have spent their whole adult lives dedicating themselves to figuring out how to help you get to the other side of that diagnosis. Among this team of people helping push back against cancer is someone that you probably haven't heard of. If you ever have to stumble into the oncology ward, they're not the one to tell you how much time you've got or what your odds of survival are. They won't tell you what type of cancer you have, and they won't be handling your medication or place your IV line. This particular person works behind the scenes, analyzing all of your data, your scans, and your imaging. And they might just be what you'd call the quarterback of your cancer treatment. We're going to start with the easy stuff. Uh, James, introduce yourself. Included in that, if you can include your, uh, your educational and your professional background. I'm Dr. James Robar. I'm the chief of medical physics at Nova Scotia Health. Um, so I'm a physicist, but working in medicine. Um, I'm a professor of radiation oncology at Dalhousie University. So medical physics... I even wrote in my interview question list, I wrote, broad question, <laughs> what is medical physics and what is its application in, in I guess, healthcare broadly? Yeah, pretty common question. Um, and, and it's probably our fault because we don't publicize ourselves that well. Medical physicists um, very generally apply physics to medicine. And, and so if you, if you walk into a hospital and you look at all the technologies, you know, imaging systems, CT, ultrasound, X-ray, uh, positron emission tomography, or if you look at therapeutic modalities like radiotherapy, which is my specialization, using linear accelerators to, to accelerate uh, electrons to the speed of light and then kill cancer cells. Um, medical physicists are behind all of that stuff. And it's, it's a really cool area because you can be a researcher and you can do R&D and you can build all this technology, all, all this cool stuff, or you can be a professional. You, you can be a board certified medical physicist. You can work in a hospital. You work with patients every day and you would be responsible for their safe and effective treatment. So <clears throat> yeah, common question, uh, not that well known. Um, I wish it was 
better known. Um, a fun fact is uh, it, it takes one medical physicist to treat um, 250 cancer patients per year. Um, so here in my department in Halifax, um, we have 16 medical physicists. So yeah, we kind of fly under the radar, but but critical to both the development of technology and, and direct uh, treatment and diagnosis of patients. You've probably heard of radiation therapy. It's a common treatment to kill cancer cells and shrink tumors. But the thing about radiation therapy is that it's so common, I've just accepted it as a term that I understand without actually knowing how it works at all. Like a tax write-off. What is it? I don't know. You just write it off, right? It's a write-off for them. How is it a write-off? They just write it off. (laughs) Write it off what? Jerry, all these big companies, they write off everything. You don't even know what a write-off is. (laughs) Do you? No, I don't. (laughs) While I was speaking with James, I couldn't help but think to myself, how did we get here? My life and my work is steeped in science-related material. And each day I find myself asking, how? It, it all starts with like fundamental research, right? I mean, if you look at how we kill cancer cells in radiotherapy, we have a linear accelerator. We have to accelerate electrons to close to the speed of light to do that. And, and four blocks from here, we have seven machines that are doing that right? But somebody had to figure out that there's an electron <laughs> to accelerate. Somebody had to know its mass and its charge. Um, then we had to understand uh, standing waves in waveguides. How can you set up enough electromagnetic energy to accelerate these? It began with something first principles, something very basic. Um, some, something that I think is really cool is you can open the side door to a clinical linear accelerator. There's a component called the klystron, which generates the electromagnetic energy to accelerate these electrons, which, which will then go on and kill cancer cells. But that was actually developed in World War II for, for radar, to spot the enemy, right? To spot and kill the enemy. And now we can open the door and see it used in medicine. We've interviewed tons of people with cancer who have undergone radiation therapy, and I've, and I realized, like, man, there's actually quite a few things in this that I, I've not really heard much about or dug into. So I'm I'm kind of interested in like kind of the A to Z, sure um, process. I actually have a lecture called Radiation Therapy 101 that I can give <laughs> you sometime, a full slide deck. But but let me like provide a synopsis of that, <laughs> please. So so uh, radiation therapy is used for um, over half of all patients who have cancer. So it's a major modality for treating cancer, along with um, surgery or systemic therapies like chemotherapies. And immunotherapy is is coming up too. Um, Radiation therapy, it's a very physical way of treating cancer. And and this is why so many physicists are involved. Um, It starts, and, and maybe like a good way to explain this is the point of view of the patient, right? So if you were a patient, um, you would have a diagnosis, you would have staging done for your cancer. And if you have a type of cancer which which is localized, so there's a tumor that we can see, we can image this, 
uh, we, we know where the boundaries of that tumor are, um, then you might be a candidate for radiation therapy. And um, so you would be connected with a radiation oncologist, you would come in, um, and, and the first bit of action that would happen would be um, you would come into our CT imaging and we would lie you down uh, on the bed and we might put you in a kind of contraption, for example, a thermoplastic mask to immobilize your head and neck if we're treating your head and neck. You might be in a, in a kind of uh, funky vacuum bag if we're treating your prostate or pelvis um, to, to keep you still, right? And then we will acquire CT images of you. And we have to do that even though you might have had previous CT imaging because we're getting, yes, we're getting pictures of your anatomy, but in the, in the position in which we intend to treat you maybe a few days later. Okay. So now we have that, that, those image data and we might combine that with other image data. So maybe you have an MRI, maybe you had a PET scan, um, and we have this wealth of imaging data. And then the medical physicist will sit down and merge all of these data. So from CT, we get like the density of your body. From MRI, we get this great soft tissue discrimination and picture of your tumor, but also the healthy structures around. And then if you had a pet, that would be uptake of fluorodeoxyglucose. So, so the functional information, how malign malignant is your tumor, how how sugar avid is, is your tumor. So we combine all that information in some very amazing software, um, which is called our treatment planning system. And then the fun part begins, at least for a, for a behind the scenes physicist like me, where we decide what types of radiation beams are we gonna use? What are the different types of beams that you can choose from? And then the second part of that is, how do you control the movement that's of something that's moving at such a speed. Okay, so let me take off the covers of a linear accelerator for just a minute. I'll start with the most common type of beam, which is an X-ray beam, otherwise known as a photon beam. And by the time they emerge out the other end, they're traveling almost at the speed of light. And we have another problem maybe that they're traveling sideways, not downwards towards the patient. So then we use and can use a bending magnet to steer them down towards the patient so at least they're heading in the right direction. And then we do something really dramatic. We take these electrons and we slam them into a piece of tungsten uh, and that is called an X-ray target. And when these electrons stop, they, they slow down very rapidly in this tungsten, they emit X-rays. And it just so happens that at that energy of, of the electrons, slamming into the tungsten, um, the x-rays that come off are, are very high energy on the order of six mega electron volts. That's like a hundred times more energetic than the x-rays that you might use to have a chest x-ray. And so these x-rays are designed to, to go on and kill cancer cells. The next thing we, we do is we actually shape these beams. And, and so now, uh, according to the treatment plan that you created earlier for the patient, um, you can customize the shape of the beam. Now, all of this is happening inside a gantry that can rotate around the body of the patient. Now imagine you rotate that beam to a different angle. You have a different view of the tumor. Right? So you need to change the shape of that beam. And so you can do that on the fly very quickly as you rotate this around the patient. And so um, that's a tour from the electron gun all the way to the beam 
uh, flying out of the linear accelerator and being customized according to the, the, uh, the shape of your tumor. I have to say, James Robar is remarkably humble for someone who has given so much to the field of radiotherapy and done so much for people living with cancer. Prior to my conversation with James, I read an article that described him as a serial inventor. Why, why is somebody describing you as a serial inventor? Well, I guess you can be a serial inventor um, whether or not those inventions have been successful or valuable, right? <laughs> I mean, we could all invent a whole bunch of stuff every day. Sure. We could all invent some throwaway thing or come up with a new idea that no one finds useful. But how about you be the judge of how useful you think this particular invention might be? There have been a few for me. Um, just, just you know, a few things. One is um, software-type technologies. So um, radiation therapy involves directing a number of uh, photon beams at the patient's tumor to, to kill cancer cells. You can think of those beams as coming from a big machine, passing through the patient, exiting the patient from different angles. And, and so we worked on um, some software called 4Pi Radiotherapy, um, that, that kind of choreographs those beams and, and makes these beams or arcs of beams dance around all of the healthy organs and tissues in the body and avoid them uh, in a nutshell. And so that was one invention. I, I did that with colleagues um, in, in our Department of Medical Physics. We licensed that to a company. Um, and now you can, you can see that in planning systems. Um, That's around pretty, the world. that sounds helpful. Yeah, I think it's helpful. Um, It really is a shame that for the sake of the show, we can't just listen to the incredible multitude of technological innovation in radiotherapy. But we'll leave you with one more nugget before we shimmy down the path of our story for today's episode. We're dynamic creatures, right? You know, I've been in this field long enough to remember a time when we would um, bring the patient into the CT scan to get the image We'd mark three tattoos on the patient for subsequent alignment for therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would imagine that that snapshot that we took of the, the patient, the CT snapshot, would apply uh, throughout the entire treatment of the patient. And, and by the way, this is fractionated treatment. So the patient needs to come back daily for multiple treatments. The, the tumor can grow. The tumor can shrink because the therapy is working. Uh, the patient can lose weight, which is changing all the anatomy, let's say, in, in, in head and neck cancer. Uh, and, and so those are kind of gradual uh, effects in, in terms of the time course. But there are things that there, there are changes that move that, that affect us very rapidly. So, you know, guys think of their prostates as kind of like just sitting there, not doing too much, maybe kind of slowly enlarging as they get older. Uh, but a uh, fun fact is your prostate can jump around by a centimeter, a centimeter and a half because it's pushed on by the rectal wall. It's, it's pushed on by the bladder on the other side. And so part of what we do is we chase the prostate. Um, so we have, uh, we have live imaging methods or close to real-time imaging methods that can track where your prostate is. And wow. then the robotics in the system can keep up with that. We have imaging systems that can follow a lung tumor under free breathing. And then we can either gate the beam when the tumor falls into the correct position or on more complex systems, robotic systems. 
the robots actually moving to track your tumor. Wow. Um, I've even seen patients with apnea who take a deep breath and the robot moves, you know, dramatically during that deep breath and then settles back down. So, um, like a guided, like a drone that's being asked to track an object. Exactly. Um, we can put markers into your body. Uh, these are transponders, let's say into your prostate, which is like a GPS for your prostate. Uh, and then we can put uh, an EM array above your pelvis and track your prostate as as it moves around. So if you think of the endpoint and the ultimate goal of this, it's precision. Isn't that fascinating? It's a rough estimate, but the number of electrons in the human body is about 2 times 10 to the 28th power. If you are rusty on your exponentials, that's the number 2 followed by 28 zeros. If you want another frame of reference, that's more electrons in your body than there are stars in the observable universe. We have figured out how to build machines that harness electrons and send them barreling towards a precise location in your body, using all manner of materials and decades of innovation to bend them to our will so that they will collide with the cells that make up our uninvited guest and blast it into oblivion. So now I, you know, sit down with my radiation oncologist friends, uh, and we we discuss the plan. I might create a couple of rival plans. Like here, here are four different plans for this patient. For this patient, I I pit them against each other. Uh, anyway, the patient's not there, right? During all of this, they probably don't imagine that we're doing all of this. Not to give anything away. But here's a bit of foreshadowing for you to chew on. Around 2006, I was very busy doing these treatment plans behind the scenes, mainly for head and neck patients. And I did a treatment plan, I now realize, for a guy called Bruce Ross. Interestingly enough, uh, James uh, was the guy who did all of the the radiation. And so uh, when that's done, our patient comes back, you would come in, you would lie down, and then treatment proceeds. And you know, it sounds very complex, but 10 minutes later, you're done, and, and you would uh, leave the room. As amazing as it is that we can do all of that, the process of treatment is not entirely made up of the high-tech gadgetry that revealed itself in the pursuit of atomic energy of the 40s and the space race that ensued. There's one aspect of treatment that someone might endure that looks a lot less like something out of a Star Trek episode and a lot more like something out of elementary school arts and crafts time. You can imagine if um, a well-focused, highly energetic radiation beam is directed at your body, uh, moving is not a good thing. So we need physical means of, of immobilizing patients. And what has been done for decades, actually, and I'm a bit embarrassed that this has been our technique, but um, imagine a thermoplastic mesh, uh, just a a flat sheet of perforated plastic with a frame. Um, You, as a patient, you would lie back into sort of a generic headrest. Uh, Our therapist would heat up this plastic in 70 degrees Celsius water, and then we would take that. It's all floppy and malleable at this point and we would form that around your head and neck. When you are going to have radiation therapy, uh, the patient can't move. And that, 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 you can't just hold them down. You, know, you can't 
physically be in there with them because there's radiation bouncing all over the place. And for example, I had what's called head and neck cancer. That's a general term for what I had. And so my head literally had to be immobilized. And to do that, they make a mask and the mask is connected to hard plastic arts that literally bolt down to the table. And if your head can move more than a millimeter, there's a chance that your spine or a key part of your brain is going to get irradiated with what's supposed to be killing the cancer. So even today, most hospitals have a technique of making that immobilizer, and it's just like being waterboarded. Um, I've had this done on me four times. Just a, It's a good idea to see what it's like from the other side of the table. I didn't think I was claustrophobic. Turns out I am. So that's what's called an immobilizer. Another device that they might need to make for you is called a bolus. Bolus uh, is a layer of tissue-like material that we will intentionally put on the surface of a patient to cause radiation to build up in that material so that it reaches a high enough level by the time that beam reaches the skin. And so bolus we use for superficial indications like skin cancer. You might say, okay, what did we build for this in the past? How did we do it? We either used a, a floppy piece of rubber called super flab uh, that never quite fit the body properly. And we know that because we image patients and we can see air gaps between this floppy rubber and it's actually vinyl and, and the body. And so our therapists start using rolls of masking tape and rolled up pillowcases to try to conform it to the body, which is not exactly a patient-centered experience. James has no shortages of stories of people that have had, let's say, a suboptimal experience in this department. But it really jumped off the page when he struck up a conversation with someone he sat next to on a flight one day. So we actually talk to patients when, when we think about the technologies that we develop. Um, and once I sat you know, randomly on a plane and the woman beside me asked me what I did and I said, I'm a medical physicist. And she said, yeah, I had radiation therapy, post-mastectomy, breast cancer. I hated my bolus. She's like, that's actually the thing that I remember. It was cold and slimy every day. It never fit me. It made um, a bad time in my life worse. And I was like, okay, like aside from all the physics issues, the creation of air gaps and the fact that causes an underdosing, which is unwanted. Um, there's, this, there's this patient experience part. Throughout my career in production and storytelling, I've had the opportunity to speak with hundreds of people who have gone through treatment for every type of cancer you could imagine, from the most common to the most rare. In all of those conversations, the thing that strikes me the most is how far beyond the invading cells a cancer diagnosis can reach. It stretches out and touches your emotions and your mental health. It affects the way you interact with your friends and family, and sometimes, or far too often, impacts the way that they interact with you. It's the stressful nature of how good and bad news ebbs and flows, never letting you rest easy in your own mind while you wait for the tide to come in or to pull you back out again. And finally, 
It's the challenge, both physically and emotionally, of executing a treatment plan. It's on this aspect that I'd like to dwell for a moment in order to bring us to the next piece of our story. When Bruce finally made it to the other side of his treatment, he walked away from cancer, leaving it firmly in the rearview mirror. And uh, so that was uh, 19 years ago or so. And uh, I've been cancer-free since then. Retired and now living in Mexico, he got a phone call one afternoon from the innovation department at Dalhousie University. What occurred, Linda and I were living in Mexico down near Guadalajara, and uh, I got a call from the Dow Innovation Department. Um, They had been trying to start a company up around uh, the issue of immobilization and bolus and had been unable to. And they said, look, we've been unable to get this business going at 3D Bolus. And Dr. Robar thinks he's got something that's, that's pretty poop hot. And they explained what he was doing. And of course, I was all excited because I thought, oh, man, this would be really cool if I get cancer again. I don't have to worry about immobilization. Bruce was excited because the thing that James Robar was onto was taking a gap in the radiotherapy treatment process, this one aspect that as the entire field leaped forward at the speed of light, had gotten left behind. James Robar was its springboard to the future, and he planned on using 3D printing to usher this part of treatment into a new era. You know, when you think about something like that, it just seems so obvious. And your first thought is, okay, someone's already doing this. You know, let's not do it because someone's already doing it. But we did a we did a search, and there was no IP on this. There were no patents. Um, I had this tremendous grad student at at Dal, this guy Shichin Su from the University of Shanghai, and we started working on the algorithms to create these devices. Uh, we filed the provisional patents on this. Um, I never met Bruce, uh, but my treatment plan was used to treat him. And long story short, Bruce was cured. Uh, as you know, Bruce is an avid road cyclist, very good cyclist. He had enjoyed a very f- fruitful career in medical devices. And Bruce was like, okay, I'm done. I'm moving to Mexico and I'm going to ride my bike, which he did. Yet, you know, he's such a curious guy that he kept his eye on the tech transfer office at Dow to see what patents were rolling in or sitting on the shelves. And he saw my patents come in. He was like, wait a minute. I had an immobilizer for radiation therapy and I didn't really like it. Uh, I might have had a bolus and you know that could have been floppy and falling off of my body and ill-fitting. And he thought you know, through his personal experience, somebody needs to start a company around this. The ingredients for a big leap forward in radiation therapy are starting to be thrown into the melting pot. A cancer survivor with vast medical industry experience has now been put onto a stalled venture that promises to change an aspect of radiotherapy that made Bruce feel more like a prisoner of war than a patient being taken care of. Earlier in our conversation, I was telling you about what happens inside the linear accelerator, what happens in the treatment planning software, how we shape beams, uh, creation of free radicals in the body. The patient doesn't see any of that, right? That's just cool stuff that that I know about and my, my colleagues know about. The patient sees this lousy piece of vinyl being applied to their body or, or this uncomfortable 
process with with a thermoplastic mask, right? We have to think about what what are the points of contact with our patient. What what's the experience going to be like? If you're on the medical side of this equation, there's a vast suite of technologies that have evolved over several decades at your fingertips. Your job constantly interfaces with things that improve outcomes for patients dealing with likely the hardest thing they'll ever face. If you're on the patient side, you're showing up to a terrifying treatment and someone is fitting you on the spot with wax or thermoplastics or silicone. It's a gap in the treatment process that exacerbates the already terrifying nature of what you're going through. And that's just the experiential side of it. When you zoom out and survey the bigger picture, it also has impacts on the quality of treatment that can be received, and it even slows down treatment times, meaning less people with cancer get treatment on the timeline that they need it. So I just described two very manual, uh, to me, substandard techniques that patients don't like. And, and I guess the key point is because this is like these are manual methods done by humans, there's inaccuracy. So take immobilizers. We also call them masks sometimes. Um, I've seen great ones that immobilize the patient really well, and I've seen lousy ones where the patient can actually move during treatment by, by several millimeters. And the fact is you don't always have a good handle on whether it's a good one or a bad one before you start treatment. When Bruce learned about James Robar's work on trying to create bolus using 3D printing, he made a phone call to someone named Peter Hickey. We'll learn more about Peter later in this series, but for now, all you need to know is that he is a prolific character in the life sciences sector in Nova Scotia, and he's played a role in getting many companies off the ground. Uh, when I retired, I decided to go get my MBA from Penrose, and uh, there was a guy in a class that I had a great deal of respect for. I thought he was a very creative guy, and I had done a couple of small projects with him, and I, I, so I felt like I knew him pretty well. And I knew that he had started or been involved in a couple of startups. So I called a guy by the name of Peter Hickey up. Peter then made a phone call to someone named Alex Dunphy. So my name is Alex Dunphy. Uh, that's where that's where it began. I think he and Peter had been doing an MBA together, maybe while Bruce was going through cancer. So he reached out to me and. Um, he said, hey, like you should really, you know, come see more about this. And then Peter and Alex paid a visit to the office of Dr. James Robar. He dispatched uh, a couple of guys with whom he had done his MBA. One of those guys who showed up in my office uh, was Alex Dunphy. Um, and at, these guys didn't even tell me they were coming. They showed up at my door and they said, James, can you explain radiation oncology to us? The pieces of the puzzle fell into place and adaptive medical technologies was born. Anyway, like fast forward to today, like former patient Bruce Ross, not only was the catalyst to starting this company, but now he's like my mentor. He's like, for one thing, he's the tough, toughest guy that I know. He has a stranglehold on his own mortality uh, and it causes him to, I think, just live really well with this tenacity that is extremely rare. Oh, and Alex Dunphy? I am the co-founder and CEO uh, at Adaptive Medical Technologies here in Halifax, Nova Scotia. 
So now let's learn a bit more about what exactly adaptive is. In our case, it was just trying to um, lend our technology to solving like complicated problems for cancer centers, right? Uh, and patients in the end. So, you know, I think in the end, our ethos is really to surround making sure that uh, we can digitize these complicated things that make it really hard for people who want to treat cancer to treat cancer in the cancer center. Uh, my sister, uh, unfortunately, was going through non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, sort of blindsided everybody in the family at the time. Um, I, you know, to that, you're sort of pretty naive about cancer, uh, really, unless it's really been around you or impacted you. Um, you know, so sitting with my sister, Janine, going through... Um, you know, chemo, right, uh, here at NS, uh, NSH, here in Halifax. And, um, you know, you reflect a little bit, like you're with her, you know, for lunch, it's three or four hours, you're sitting in a room, she's getting, she's got an IV, there's a lot of people from Yarmouth and places like that getting their cancer treatment. And it was eye-opening, I think, experience, a little bit sort of sobering. Alex's background is in computer science, and he spent years bouncing around different industries, applying his trade. But when the opportunity came calling to put his skill and expertise to use on a startup poised to change the face, sometimes literally, of radiation therapy, he couldn't ignore it. Peter Hickey had introduced me to Dr. Robar and this technology, and I was kind of humming and hawing about it. And, um, you know, I had a session with my sister. I just sort of reflected, like, what am I doing with my skills, right? Why am I doing these other things that, you know, I'm helping the power company or, you know, a, a grocery retailer make another nickel on a banana or something like that. Uh, so I decided it was probably better to uh, just throw that away. Okay. I want to tell you exactly how this all works. But before I do, let's have a short little story time about something that is very important in our story. 3D printing. 3D printing has come a very, very long way. In researching for this episode, I came across one article in which the first line read, what technology is 80 years old in theory, 40 years old in practice, and looks like it was invented yesterday? The idea of it first cropped up in a short story in 1945 by someone named Murray Leinster called Things Pass By. In this story, a process is described where magnetronic plastics are fed into a moving arm. Drawings are made in the air following drawings it scans from photocells. Plastic comes out of the end of the drawing arm and hardens as it comes. What would Leinster think if he knew that his sci-fi imaginings would go on to help someone in their cancer treatment. In the early 70s, patents were filed by a man named James Gottwald to use inkjet technology to spray liquefied metal, which would harden rapidly as a nozzle sprayed layer upon layer, taking printing off of the page and into the third dimension, at least intellectually. In 1980, the idea evolved into using thermoplastics by a man in Japan named Dr. Hideo Kodama. The patent was filed, but the technology went nowhere. There were some developments by the defense company Raytheon and a few others, but it was someone named Chuck Hall who was the first person to actually build a 3D printer. In 1987, Hall's company, the aptly named 3D Systems Corporation, 
released the world's first stereolithographic apparatus, the fancy name for 3D printer. Chris Hull filed many patents around this tech and invented the STL file, which is still a standard file type used when 3D printing today. But it wasn't until the early 2010s that 3D printing made waves in the minds of millions. The technology had greatly matured, and for that reason, it was now accessible for a consumer to go out and buy a 3D printer for themselves and make stuff right at home. Okay, that's the Coles notes on 3D printing. Let's get into how Adaptive put it to use for something a bit more important than making your favorite action figures. So enter 3D printing, right? Um, around, what was it, 2013 or so, we all started to hear about 3D printing. We saw it on YouTube. Uh, we did the important things first, like printing Star Wars action figures and, and bird feeders and all these things. That was fun. Um, but we were thinking, wow, we have the data anyway. We have a CT scan for every patient anyway because we need it for their treatment planning. So let's just let the patient go. We'll build some software algorithms that, that can build the device they need in software as a 3D model. And then without the patient being there, uh, we can create this object. Uh, be it a bolus or an immobilizer, there's also something called a brachytherapy applicator. And so with an idea and a few phone calls to the right people with the right experience, a company is born on the shores of Nova Scotia to help change the patient experience across the globe. And this is related to the process as well as the printing technology. Adaptive teamed up with HP. And uh, we landed on HP as a Series A funding partner. Actually, HP found us. And HP said, we want to invest in companies that have some sort of mission-critical application and for which our technology, which is called multi-jet fusion printing, uh, has some sort of differential advantage over every other uh, 3D printing technology. I was able to work with material scientists and physicists at HP to engineer this polymer that we're actually using um, to lower the toxicity to the skin when we build immobilizers. That was, that was amazing because it solved two problems. It, it allowed Adaptive to kind of pivot and develop Adaptive On Demand, where yes, you're designing the bespoke patient device in your clinic, but then you're hitting send it to me in the software a little bit like Uber Eats. You know, you, now we're making your bolus, now it's on the truck. Uh, and with a turnaround of, of just uh, a few days that lands back in your clinic. Very early on when we were working on this technology, I had this experience with this patient. He had recurrent cancer in his nasal passages, right? Like deep, uh, at sort of the, the deep end of your nasal passage. And so he needed a bolus that would fit uh, into his nostrils uh, and go way back there, uh, approaching the sinus. And um, I realized that I had a CT scan for him in our archive system. This was a diagnostic CT. And so even without meeting this fellow, I was able to create this device, 3D print it at very high resolution. And then we were ready to use it for his treatment. And I came in and I said, 
this is going to fit your nose exactly. And he was like, how can that be? I've never seen you before. And I'm like, trust me, it will. And we built it in two halves. So he could put in the left nostril, the right nostril and snap it together. And it fit him perfectly. He's like, you're right. This like, how did you do that? And then I realized that he felt better when he realized how um, personalized this was, that we had thought about him and we had created something without him even being there for him. Um, and I could see like the effect on him. He felt better, right? He, he was saying, okay, these people know about me. Not only is it functional, not only is it more comfortable, but Adaptive's tech can also be personalized to the patient, which can have a profound impact on a person's emotional experience when going through treatment. Uh, a, f- a fun part of the technology is the top layer can be in color. So imagine you have an, a mobilizer for a kid, right? That top layer can be Spider-Man or a princess or a dinosaur. Or for an adult, it can be messages from friends and family on the inside of the mask. You can have QR codes, patient identifiers, uh, localization marks. Um, it's just, it's a great technology. Some people are struck by an idea and they can't be dissuaded. Others hear that idea and they're called to help bring it to life. And sometimes these ideas fundamentally change the way that something has been done for decades. I've known many people in my life who have had to walk the path of cancer treatment. Some are still here and others aren't. Whoever you are listening to this right now, my guess is that your experience is pretty close to mine. And if you walk down the street and ask any random person, they'll probably tell you the same thing. When I put myself in the shoes of someone who has to lay on the table while subatomic particles blast apart the DNA of runaway cells, I feel a deep sense of gratitude for people like James, Alex, Bruce, and everyone else at Adaptive for making that intensely undesirable experience just that little bit better. As much as all of the technical reasons motivate everyone at Adaptive in building technology, it's this patient experience that we're trying to improve. Yeah, that's really cool. New Wave is a Life Sciences Nova Scotia podcast, and it's produced by Snack Labs. It's written and hosted by me, Taylor McGilvery, and it's edited by Brian Stever, Jeremy Saunders, and me. Sound design and engineering by Donovan Morgan. Special thanks to the team at Life Sciences Nova Scotia, Sean Awalt, Doris Grant, Carrie Manette, Kira McGlinchey, and Lorianne Coring. And to our guests, 